Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Ross. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever you are tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, to be guides who explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. Today's episode continues our series on Historic Missourians, which is a website curated and hosted by the State Historical Society of Missouri and geared towards students learning about Missouri history for the first time. We are joined today by Bridget Haney. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Missouri-Columbia and is presently a historian at the State Historical Society of Missouri. She joins us today to talk about her new biography for historic Missourians on Arval Strickland. Welcome to Art Missouri, Bridget. Thank you for having me. So let's get a little bit into Arval Strickland here. Talk a little bit about how you found out information about him and kind of preparing this overall biography. So um, I was fortunate enough to just start with his collection that we have at the Society, which is huge and unprocessed, but it is just a wonderful, like, just wealth of information about him personally, and then also what he saw as being important to save for his own personal collection. So it was actually kind of special to have his collection that he arranged, that he spent time at the society, that he knew basically how it would be used, and and I think that that was pretty clear in what he decided to save. Um, so it was a very good like window, I think, into just who he was as a person, because I had never met him. Um, I came way after, you know, he had already uh, retired and then passed away. So I've never met him, but I've met the two uh, chairs that the two Strickland chairs that we've had um, at Mizzou. So it was just a really interesting connection between the people I know and then him who kind of started it all. Thinking about kind of overall materials of Strickland, what was particularly helpful about the about the collection? I mean, it had to be daunting, obviously, in an unprocessed collection and the sheer size of it. Talk a little bit about going through that and kind of curating that as you were preparing it to some extent. Um, honestly, the, when I first looked at it, I was like, oh, this is going to be terrible. Like a historian who's collecting his own archive, who's, who's serving, like none of the good stuff is going to be there. But I think just the the archival process itself, just this idea of saving periods of your life, it kind of lends, I, I feel like it lends to like, no matter how, how much you want to curate a certain idea, collecting that much information over that much time has a story of its own. And I feel like it came through, if that makes sense. <laughs> Let's dive a little bit into his youth. Where, where was Arvo Strickland born? Where did he grow up at? So he was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, very much segregated, very much kind of insulated. I think complete, they were uh, very poor um, as most people would have been, but I think he was just born at a, a, a significant time, right? So there was the school, the black school for uh, elementary children was probably about five years, had been in existing for about five years. So his whole life, there was a, school to attend versus like his mother didn't have that opportunity and his father didn't have that opportunity so just kind of when he was born in Mississippi I feel like created an opportunity for him to be able to pursue an education that wouldn't have been there for people before 
since we know him as kind of his connection to the University of Missouri, how does he get to Missouri? What's that path out of Mississippi into the state of Missouri? So um, this was actually something interesting that I found. So he he went to college in Tougaloo, um, in, which is right outside of Jackson, Mississippi, which but it was segregated like HBCU situation, but it was different because some of the professors were white. For a lot of the black schools at the time, they were all black professors, like black professors, black students, but Tougaloo, um, because of the way that it was started, which I found very interesting, was the connection to the Amistad slavery ship that kind of landed in New York. It was this weird, bizarre connection. So the group that helped defend the, the Amistad um, enslaved people bought Tougaloo, like the plantation from, um, from a, a, a slaveholder. And it was their point to kind of instill this institution in Mississippi to kind of help combat racism from that end, which I was like, oh, I had no idea that there was this Tougaloo connection to the Amistad. And I thought, wow, that's very interesting. Um, so how did he get from Mississippi to uh, Chicago, which is where he went to school? Um, when he graduated, uh, he said that uh, in an interview that he had done with a, with a newspaper article, he mentioned that um, it was a bat. It was basically a bat between his white professors or whether or not a Tougaloo student could go to a university in the North and do well. And that's kind of how he got into grad school. And, you know, he was very smart and very successful. And so, but yeah, he, he definitely says that it was a bat. Like he wouldn't have been to grad school if not for those professors making the bat to see if uh, education in Mississippi could stand up to one in Illinois. Now, leaving Chicago, also ultimately coming to to Missouri here to the university. Let's talk a little bit about some highlights from his career. What you know? What are his major publications? What is he doing on the campus that really is noteworthy and kind of brings a lot of attention to him? So, what actually gets him, I think, the attention of the curators of the University of Missouri is his dissertation, which he, um, which was uh, the first. It's called they they label it as the first critical review of a Black self-help organization. So he was the first person to kind of look at the Urban League in Chicago as a success, where everyone else had kind of lumped it into the civil rights movement as kind of like a failure. But by pulling it out, he's actually able to highlight how it was a successful, respectable institution, and it actually did achieve the goals that it wanted to. So that it was just like, just for to have someone open the door to that is amazing, right? Because this is where we get a lot of uh, the Black history, where we're looking at respectability and we're looking at institutions. And it kind of comes from him just taking a different view. On campus here, what, what was his major contributions in terms of departments, his role within the history department? Let's talk a little bit about that. So he's, he's brought in as like the first African-American tenure professor at, um, at the university. Uh, he's the first one to do it. He comes in with full tenure. For him, he specifically mentioned that it could have been anywhere, right? Like it wasn't the fact that he was in Missouri. It was the fact of the work that he was doing. So he could have gone, you know, to any of the other institutions that looked for him, but he needed to be in Missouri because he said that Missouri really needed the University of Missouri really needed to open up the doors to, to Black students, to Black scholars, and, and actually lead the way for other universities in the state. Let's talk a little bit about Strickland in the sense of 
you know, people may be encountering him for the first time through the Historic Missourians bio, through this this podcast episode. But for people who might know of him, perhaps in and around Columbia here, what's something that they may not know about him, though? What's something that may be off the radar or off the record that people may not know? I think people probably don't know that he actually understood, right, like what his role was and that he um, expected pushback, like he expected to, to encounter racism. Right. He he didn't expect to come to the University of Missouri and not experience it. He knew that it was going to be part of of his process being here. And he just kind of rolled it into his actions. He didn't take a hard stand on racism per se, but his existence and his constant like looking towards bringing black students here, bringing black uh, educators here and just um, kind of paving the way. I would say for other students to come through and not really taking like an anti-racism stand or more of a conciliatory, I guess, approach to, to bringing people together. And I think that he forefronted that on purpose, right? He wanted to be the one to open the doors. And for that, um, he didn't do it in a way that would create conflict. And that was kind of the plan. For students who are looking at this, you know, this, this website's really geared towards, you know, late elementary school students, even middle school students who are learning about Missouri history and encountering many of these individuals for the first time. What's a takeaway that you want those students to kind of see in, the, in going through Arvon Strickland's biography? What's the legacy in a lot of ways to consider? I think his legacy was to make academia more accessible to people who would not otherwise have had that path. So I think he was trying to really bridge this, the, this kind of gap between people who have maybe come from poor cities, people who didn't have the resources, people who weren't expected to go off to grad school or to college in general. And I think his his point was to kind of make the university a more welcoming place for those students. Any final thoughts or words of wisdom or, or things you encountered with Strickland in the papers that intrigued you? What intrigued me the most, I think, was his course on roots. Like it, the just the logistics of that was insane. So uh, the actual TV show aired weekly um, at a specific time, right? We didn't have TiVo or Pause or <laughs> like any of those other things like streaming services. So you had to sit in front of your television and be ready to watch this, this class. And if you missed, a, like if you missed an episode, it will be weeks before the university the library would have the actual VCR tape so that you can go to the library and sit down and put in the VCR tape to watch the week of the class that you missed. And so just the logistics of something that would be so easy for us to do today, right, was so complicated. He had to mail out packets. So you're getting your syllabi in the mail from your professor. You're getting your assignments in the mail. Um, and just this weird logistical, like, problems to overcome this television production course um, in the 70s. It was just crazy like I just couldn't believe I couldn't imagine getting like just a packet in the mail and having to go to the library to watch VHS tapes to figure out what's going on it's just just the foresight to think to do that it's crazy that's absolutely fascinating uh thank you very much Bridget for joining us well thank you have a good day thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast if you would like to learn more about the podcast including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website, 
at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. <laughs>